in Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to you to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet, and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. What is the goal for human life? If you are a technologist of a certain kind, you might think that the goal of human life is, ironically, to overcome the limits of humanity. So much of what's going on in the technocentric world we live in is, is all about that, artificial intelligence and so on. We're moving into an age that philosophers and cultural theorists are calling the post-human world. Halloween was a few days ago. I'll try not to scare you anymore with it. If you're of a more decadent philosophy from the ancient world, and let me assure you, this philosophy has variants that exist in our own time, you might think that the goal of human life is to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. There's a more comic book version of an American ideal I see out there in our world. This is probably more popular. Maybe the goal to human life is to live in such a way as to be able to make a mark, make an impact, do something maybe even good. But for the great tradition of Christianity, the goal is nothing less than union with the divine. Now, we have different words to describe that, and you've used some of them. Sometimes we call this salvation. Some of us like heaven language. Sometimes it's restoration or redemption. Some of the church fathers would talk about the transfiguration of the cosmos. In some cases, it's likened to an inheritance. 
That's how St. Paul puts it here as he writes his letter to the Christians in a place called Ephesus. Uniting with God is something of an inheritance, something that Christians are striving for. For Christians, those who follow the death to old self and new life in the resurrection of Christ into God's kingdom are the recipients of an inheritance, connection with God. Now, what we are reading here is a letter, as I said, from St. Paul to a church in a place called Ephesus. And in this part of the letter, Paul is appealing to them. He begins by noting that he's heard of their faithfulness. These people were good people. They were striving after God in the right ways, and Paul is praising them for it here at the very beginning. But did you notice how he sets off discussion of their faithfulness, how he, how he begins to talk about it? He says this, you love and have love toward the saints. It appears that a faithful Christian is somebody who can and does exhibit love toward the saints. Who is a saint? I know it's really common for us to think about Roman Catholicism and other traditions that actually have a, a way of making people saints. And when we think about sainthood like that, we kind of think about maybe, let's just be crass for a moment, super Christians, people who lived far and above most everybody else, and so we give them a special status. As Reverend Chambers reminded me this week, the most common way to address Christians in the New Testament letters is either brothers and sisters or saints. Paul says, you are faithful because you love the saints. I think Paul is simply saying part of their faithfulness is that they have love for other brothers and sisters in Christ. To have love for the saints is something like having solidarity with others. There's this horizontal aspect to it, looking to who's to the right and left of you and, and knowing something deeply about who they are and sharing a fate with them. But it doesn't end there because once you start thinking about others who've done this faith, there's a vertical dimension that comes into the imagination. We begin to move from the solidarity moment to the moment of gratitude because we remember that there are other people who have lived before us and lived it well, and then we think again, there will be people who come after us, and so there is a two-direction fascination that we would have if we are people who love the saints. Christians are those who recognize it, who they are in the trenches with and are inspired by those who have done it well before them. I was once in Boy Scouts, and we were invited down to a, a large scout gathering in a town called Pena, Illinois. And there's this natural amphitheater there, right there by the water. We were called to assemble one night. No one really knew why we were there. All the boys were talking and not paying much attention. And then just in the distance, you could hear the, the beating of drums. It was getting louder. It was getting louder. And then you could hear indigenous singing. And it got louder and louder. And around the corner came... Native Americans dressed in clothes from a bygone age, and they were dancing in a serpentine pattern around a fire and by water. They were known as the Kaskaskia River Dancers. And after they were done with the presentation, they took questions from the boys. I don't know the question, but I remember the answer well. One of the Native Americans said to us boys there, we tell the stories of our ancestors, we remember our ancestors' stories, and we pass them down because that tells us 
who we are. That is not unlike Christianity. The call to remember, well, those who've gone before in a way shares something of your own identity, and it informs something of your own identity. They love the saints well. From here, though, Paul continues his expression of hope and prayer for that community at Ephesus, namely that they have the wisdom of God and that their hearts would be enlightened, that they, they would hold on to the hope that they had when they were first called, and ultimately they would persist in their devotion to the one who brings God's rule and reign to bear in this world, Christ, Christ himself. So why do we reflect on this letter, this text today, on a day after a weekend of remembering those who've gone before? Why All Saints Day? In a former church, it was my chance to preach. I only got so once a month or something like that. So when I would preach, I'd plan it out. I'd plan themes a month out and talk to the worship leader and always try to make it really special. I remember learning in seminary that... Um, Worship should be more than just about uh, good feelings, and that there are moments of worship that are mournful and sometimes full of lament. If you just look at the book of Psalms, in there you see every single human feeling imaginable. And so God wants to meet you where you are. That was the lesson. And I thought, you know, we don't do a whole lot of mourning in church, so I, I thought I was being clever and rather novel. I started planning with the worship director songs that were more funeral-oriented and dirge-like. I asked some members of the congregation who had lost loved ones to give testimony about the pain of that loss, and then I tried to address it theologically in the sermon about loss and mourning and then Christian hope. I went to a friend who was a professor of liturgics at, at the school nearby, and I went to go tell him about my new idea, and I sat down with him in a coffee shop and explained it, and he smiled, and he says, oh, so you're just doing an All Saints Day service. I thought I was being novel and clever. Turns out I was being so novel and clever, I fell right into tradition. But it wasn't All Saints Day. It was another time of the year, and we did the service. Afterwards, three or four people, I'm told, told one person to come talk to me. I love adults in church. And when they came to me, they said, people are saying, and by the way, that is a nonsensical comment. If you're not willing to identify who's saying it, take a hike. People are saying that they didn't like the service. I remember feeling gutted at the reaction. I probably didn't handle it very well in my youth, but I, I, I thought about it for a long time, and I sometimes still do, didn't like worship. What does that mean even? Friends, it occurs to me that worship isn't something that's necessarily to be liked. It's not what it's for. Its end is also not even joy or enjoyment. Rather, we worship for other reasons, don't we? We worship in some way or another to overcome a nasty little tendency that we have toward idolatry. We worship to be formed. It's no mistake when you come to church that we, we put words in your mouth that, that mean something. We often say a prayer of penitence where we ask for forgiveness. We, we pass the peace. We worship to have our, our imaginations formed, set on a new direction or a new course. Friends, we worship through the entire human experience. 
Worship should teach us how to properly celebrate. It should also teach us how to mourn. In this kind of worship, we kind of worship where we remember those who've gone before us. We, we are remembering those who've gone before for an important reason. We, we do so to hold on to their lives. We're, we're doing so to learn from their stories, both their successful stories and their not-so-successful stories. We worship like this to be inspired by people who have faced down things in their own life with the gospel so that maybe we can have the courage to do so as well. We worship like this because we need to be reminded of a simple fact. We will all die. Contra the technocentric elites, none of us will get out of this place alive. So our faith reminds us that, that we are, in a sense, all living to prepare for our funerals. What sorts of lives are we living? Are we holding on to the hope of Christ like the church at Ephesus? Are we growing in wisdom and courage like those ancient saints? Are we throwing off old idolatries that bog us down in favor of true devotion to Jesus Christ? Days like all saints and all souls, other days of the dead, and every single funeral liturgy you participate in should remind you that you have to get your life ready and be ready for the end, for it will come. What kind of funeral will you have? Now, the truth is that most people here, in my belief, are fairly good from a banal, pedestrian sort of way of thinking about it. M most of us have probably never done a violent crime. I would bet that most of us have never done a major crime against humanity. Now, crimes against creation, we've done those aplenty. That's a whole other sermon, another time. But nothing to people, probably. Oh, it is Halloween time, my favorite time of the year, and it does remind me that we do make up stories in our culture about werewolves, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Why do we make those stories up? Well, we make them up and we tell them because we're reminding ourselves that sometimes the monster is from outside of us and sometimes there's a monster from the inside of us. So they caution us and they, they, they temper us. But still, I think if I were a betting person and you and I were all to get a nice ledger about the good stuff we've done in our life versus the bad, I'm just betting with all of you lovely people that there would be more stuff in the good column than the bad column. I'm saying that I think we're probably fairly okay. And yet, I'm reminded by the late, great novelist David Foster Wallace that there are far more elusive evils, far more elusive idolatries that are eroding our souls and making us live lives not in line with our inheritance, more slippery things than the big bads we can list and make movies about. He says at commencement in Kenyon College this, if you worship money and things, if they are what, where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart you end up feeling stupid, a fraud, 
always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. The kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. He's right. He's right. There are little idolatries that we don't think about, little habits and practices that we slip into like a warm bath that begin to erode us down. They're not the big bad things. They're smaller things. For David Foster Wallace, the trick, he tells the college students, is to keep these things top of mind, front of you. I might suggest another answer is to just go to church. Because when you go to church, you're reminded of things like, I'm a sinner and I have fallen. You pray prayers of penitence. You offer words around a cup and bread that remind you of atonement. You're encouraged to pass peace and to offer forgiveness. You're also told a few times a year in the calendar you're going to die too. So have your life ready. Be ready. Since it's a time of reflecting on the saints, I thought I would reflect with you this morning on one of everybody's favorite saints, St. Francis of Assisi, how we like him. You know, he was a snot-nosed punk, though, don't, don't you know that? That's who he was. He needed a comeuppance, and he got one from God. God got a hold of him. He took this person who thought of sick people as vile and gave them a heart for the most vile and sick. St. Francis had a way of not letting these idolatries erode his soul because he saw the world in a way that is compelling and beautiful. The entire world needs to hear the gospel. Lepers, the sick, and so the birds, and Brother Moon and Sister Sun, which is why you often see statues of St. Francis in a garden or preaching to birds as a, he's a, made into some sort of like bird bath or something like this, because he literally talked about evangelizing creation. If it's in your mind to see that the gospel needs to go to not every person, but to everything in the world, it's another way of not allowing these subtle, insidious little habits and sins to creep over you because you see the world is always ready to hear the gospel. Part of the reason why we do worship services like these is to train our souls, friends, to be conscious of its possible maladies and to be reminded of the great prayers of saints who have gone before us as they have prayed for us to live lives worthy of what we're called, to live lives worthy of our inheritance, to live lives worthy of the gift.